We're going to turn to 2 Peter chapter 2, and uh, I want to read these first three verses again. Uh, We got started in these last week, but there was still just too much to cover, and I already know I'm not going to make it through uh, the whole message today, I'm pretty sure, but let's see how far we get. Would you stand in honor of God's Word, and I'm going to take a moment to read it both in the King James and Alexa English Bible so you can hear the little nuances of flavor there. But there were false prophets also among the people, even as there shall be false teachers among you, who privily shall bring in damnable heresies, even denying the Lord that bought them, and bring upon themselves swift destruction. And many shall follow their pernicious ways, by reason of whom the way of truth shall be evil spoken of. And through covetousness shall they with feigned words make merchandise of you, whose judgment now of a long time lingereth not, and their damnation slumbereth not. And the reason I wanted to read another translation, you probably haven't used the word pernicious yourself in the last week, so let's read another uh, take on it. But there were also false prophets among the people, as there will be false teachers among you also, who will bring in destructive heresies, even denying the master who bought them thus bringing on themselves swift destruction, and many will follow their licentious ways because of whom the way of truth will be reviled. And in greediness they will exploit you with false words, whose condemnation from long ago is not idle, and their destruction is not asleep. Let's pray. Father, would you now open our hearts to your word and to be attentive to what you have to say to us. Would you give us uh, open minds? Uh, You would reason with us. And uh, that would you please just also open our spirits to what you want to say to us personally. And Father, we, we bring to you now again those prayer requests that uh, we didn't mention early enough a while ago and pray especially for Chris and Desiree that you'll give them wisdom and um, grace uh, to, to deal with Jubilee and help Jubilee to find a way to, to uh, connect to her outside world and just provide for the needs of this Precious family, uh, Father, pray for Steve and Belinda that you'll keep them safe and help Steve to, to continue to, to do well and keep him well. That you, We ask, Lord, you put a protective hedge around each of our families and for uh, uh, Nancy and Tina and around Dennis and Lane and others that you just would keep a protective hedge so that even while the virus uh, seems to be spreading at a peak, that you will, Father, uh, keep us safe and keep us useful to your kingdom. And, Father, in days when we're quarantined, it's kind of hard to figure out exactly how to go about sharing the gospel with others. Father, help us be creative and show us opportunities that we have to share Jesus Christ with others. Now, Lord, we love you, and we just ask for you to glorify yourself in the time we have left. For it's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. Thank you. You may be seated. So uh, we're going to back, uh, get a running start, as it were, at, at the rest of this passage. And we had started talking last time about what were the fruits of false prophets, but we didn't quite finish it. So these first few slides, if you were here a few weeks ago when I was preaching on this, you'll, you'll think I'm being redundant. That's okay. I mentioned in First Peter uh, chapter 1 that Peter says he needs to put them in remembrance of the former things. So sometimes we need stuff repeated. But 
uh, just some, some reviews, these false teachers were coming among God's people, and Peter spends a lot of Second Peter writing about this. They identify as being a Christian, they identify as being part of the group, but they secretly start introducing a new way of thinking or a new system of doctrine, and they try to lead people astray, and their teachings do not benefit others. And in Isaiah 28, we're told that uh, these people uh, seek to gratify the flesh. They err in their vision. They, ran, they render poor counsel, and they give bad decisions. Uh, we're told in Jeremiah that they operate in deceit. They lie. They bring God's judgment not only upon themselves, but on others who would follow their teachings. Uh, Micah says that they offer this. They go around when... when Judgment is obviously on the way. They go around saying, peace, peace, but there is no peace. Uh, they work to hurt those who are not uh, filling their coffers, not uh, giving them their money, They're not uh, meeting their own selfish desires. And they proclaim that the Lord is on their side, but they haven't gotten on God's side. And they turn people away from the truth of God's work. So these are some of the, the things that we covered last time. And then we started looking at the characteristics of these deceivers. One is they infiltrate churches. They, they sneak in. Uh, they want to be accepted. They want to teach. Uh, I remember having, I've told you before about the uh, woman that wrote me the letter that I still have in my filing cabinet at home. Uh, where she called me a milksop of a preacher because she called me up and she told me she wanted to visit my church and instantly asked for the opportunity to teach a class. So I asked her about her doctrine and very quickly, within about uh, 45 seconds, I figured out that she was from the Church of Christ scientist and they don't believe anything's actually real. We're all just uh, imaginations in the mind of God and uh, it's all this ethereal stuff, but it's not the gospel. It's a perversion. It's a cult. And I, I told her that uh, I would have to uh, know that she had a personal relationship with Jesus Christ and we would have to meet to talk about her doctrine before I could approve her to teach a class in the church that I pastored. And uh, she got angry with me. Uh, she actually used some really foul language on the phone uh, to me when I did that. And then I get this very interesting letter a few weeks later calling me a milksop of a preacher. It's actually one of the greatest compliments I think I've ever been paid. Uh, but uh, they, she wanted to come in, she wanted to teach her false doctrine, and she started off by sounding very spiritual, saying the right words, and they appear to be meek followers of Christ until they're confronted with what they are. And Jesus even warned against them, and he says, Beware of false prophets would come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly they are ravening wolves. Now, by the way, this is a key passage because today we have to deal with the question of what happens to these false teachers because Peter seems to indicate these false teachers are going to hell. They're going to the lake of fire. And, and we have to ask the question, well, are they really believers? Because if they're really believers, we, got, we have to deal with, uh, did they lose their salvation? But listen to what Jesus says. These false prophets, it says, they come to you in sheep's clothing. In other words, they clothe like sheep. But what's Jesus say about their inward character? Inwardly, they are ravening wolves. And so these people are not, in Jesus' estimation, Jesus' judgment, they're not born-again believers. They're not part of the sheep. They're wolves. They despise authority. So they attack the God-ordained authorities. Now, in... We know that there's four areas of life that we have authorities in, don't we? Uh, we have, a, um, I have an employer, I have a boss. Now, I, I am blessed to have a wonderful boss. I've had 
nothing but good Christian bosses now for the last 20 years, and I'm very grateful for that. I've had some that weren't in the past, but and I have a especially wonderful boss in my secular employment now, and he's a good Christian man, and we, we're able to fellowship in that way. So I'm grateful for that, uh, but he's still my authority, and if he, he tells me I need this done by this date, then it's my job to get that thing done by that date. Um, and then these people not only want to despise, well, the second area of authority, of course, is at home. Uh, a man is the head of the house, he's the final authority, but he's supposed to make decisions in conjunction with his wife. Uh, she is the radar that keeps him from flying in a mountain because sometimes we look way off and we don't see the immediate consequences of something. Sometimes our wives have information we don't have. And so I believe that a, a husband and wife need to work together to make the crucial decisions for the family. But if there ever is a point of conflict, then the buck stops with me. And that's a, not a responsibility I actually enjoy. <laughs> it's something that, that is a huge burden on my shoulders to make sure that I, I make the, the right decisions. And I'm not always the most popular person in my house sometimes. But uh, the, the point is, is that there has to be a structure of authority. And children need to obey their parents and the Lord for this is right. It's the first commandment with a promise. And then we have, so we have our employers, we have uh, uh, the structure in the home, and then also we have our government. Now, this is probably my least favorite area of authority, uh, but we have people in authority over us. So right now here in Dallas County, uh, Judge Clay Jenkins is the, uh, the county judge, and he has passed regulations regarding how we're to behave in public during the coronavirus for the county. But then we have Governor Abbott, who's passed another set of regulations for the state, and we have to figure out how to reconcile them. And sometimes it's a full-time job just figuring out what the regulations are this week. Uh, for behaving in a COVID-19 world, it's it's interesting. And then we've got uh, we've got senators that represent us. We have uh, p congressmen that represent us. And by the way, sometimes I forget this, so I don't want you to forget it. I reminded myself of this this last week. I was actually thinking about writing one of my senators about a particular issue, and and as I was thinking about it, I thought, oh yeah, that's right. He's my employee. See, they work for us, and they forget that. <laughs> so you should write them a letter and say, by the way, I'm, I'm one of the constituents and taxpayers in the state that you represent, so I'm, I'm sending you uh, some uh, thoughts from the person who employs you. <laughs> and because basically that's what we need to do. But we also, you know, we also have authorities. We've got a president. We've got Congress. We need to pray for them. It says, pray for kings and all their authority that we may live a godly and peaceable life in Christ Jesus. So we need to do that. And it's so easy sometimes to just criticize the people that are up there instead of praying for them. And I can tell you what, they need prayer. And then these people, there's the, the final area of authority, of course, is in, in church. Hebrews 13 says, obey them that have the rule over you. It's talking about the pastors and elders in your church. For they must give an account for your soul. So God is holding me accountable someday of whether I preach the whole counsel of the word of God to you. Or someone taught you the whole counsel during the Sunday school hour. In other words, but there are spiritual authorities that we need to obey as well. 
Peter says in 2 Peter 2.10 uh, that there's a problem with these false teachers, and that is that they walk, it says they walk after flesh and the lust of uncleanness. They despise government. Now, he's not saying that they despise Republicans and Democrats. He's saying they despise authority. They despise authority. Presumptuous are they, self-willed, and they're not afraid to speak evil of dignities. Now, by the way, this, I've had a problem with this in the past. It's easy for me to criticize the man in the White House, okay? It's e easy for me to criticize the man in the governor's mansion. I can find things to criticize about anybody, but Scripture doesn't call me to criticize them. He calls me to pray for them, and I need to remember that even when there's someone there that you know I'm not particularly fond of. Then they says they speak eloquently. They tend to have keen intellect. They have great reasoning ability. They sound smart. And so we, we listen to them because if someone speaks eloquently, we automatically assume that they must be right. And this is why I hope that, that you always go home and check the Bible for yourself. It doesn't matter how eloquently the pastor speaks or how eloquently I speak or how good our reasoning is. If it's not based on the word of God, it's just wrong. So you need to double check. But a lot of people don't double check. And so when they find someone that has a keen intellect and great thinking ability, and, and I'll, let, me, let me share a personal observation here. I, I have a number of friends that probably don't fit into the mold of, of uh, conservative evangelical Baptist friends, <laughs> okay? Uh, I have friends that are homosexual, okay? But... They're friends, and I work together with them, and I have learned to like them. They like me. They know I don't approve of their lifestyle. They know I believe it's wrong, and yet they also know that I care for them. I've got one guy every time I work with him, first thing I do is I go up, give him a big hug when I haven't seen him for a while because he's a good guy, and we've known each other for two decades now. I have friends who are Mormon. And one thing I've noticed about Mormons is they very often are very intellectual, and they have been trained. They spent two years uh, going through a book called Insights and Investigations. And they memorize a script of questions and answers. And the Mormon missionaries always travel by tubes. And they're taught that one of them asks the question and the other does this. And they're taught to control the conversation. So if you get two Mormon missionaries teaming up on you and they're using these insights for investigators or investigations, I forget now which one it's called, they have a script that is trying to force you into believing what they're told to do because they control the conversation. Now, they'll get totally off if you say, wait a minute, I want to ask you about something. And, of course, one of those things that's fun to ask them about is in the Book of Mormon, it says that if you believe in a God that changes, you do not believe in a God of miracles. And the core of their doctrine, Brigham Young says, as man is, God once was, as God is, man will become. In other words, we're all evolving, and one day we'll all be God. I have a Mormon friend that lives up in Flower Mound, and if you go into his living room over his mantle, is this picture of a man and woman in this white uh, gown all the way down to their ankles. They're standing out amongst the stars, and they're looking at the planets, trying to choose the planet where they will go create mankind in their image and be the gods for that new world because that's what Mormon theology teaches. And that they're looking forward to the day they're going to be gods. Well, I'm sorry, there's only one God. There only ever will be one God. And there's none else like him. But they're, they are masters of debate. They're intelligent. Jude says, 
They're, these are murmurs, complainers, walking after their own lust, and their mouth speaketh great, swelling, arrogant, proud words, like I'm going to be a god someday, <laughs> having men's persons in admiration because of advantage. People look up to them because of the way uh, that they speak, so they speak eloquently. What else do they They draw away disciples. Their goal is to, to attract people to themselves and build up a following for themselves rather than to build up the, the church of God. And they're always looking for an opportunity to do this. There were people who were just waiting for Paul to die so that they could take away those that had followed him. Paul said in Acts 20, For I know this, that after my departing shall grievous wolves enter in among you, not sparing the flock. Also of your own self shall men arise, speaking perverse things, to draw away disciples after them. Therefore watch and remember that by the space of three years I ceased not to warn everyone night and day with tears. He says, listen, when I'm gone, they're going to come try to tear down the faith that I've been teaching you. And I've been warning you now for three years this is going to happen. Pay attention because it's going to happen. Then they ridicule God's standards. God is a holy God, as we sang about today, holy, 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 Lord God Almighty. But people don't want to hear uh, things like that, and so false prophets uh, tell people what they want to hear. They approve what God despises. They assure people that these things are acceptable. Second Timothy uh, chapter 4, Paul says, In the last days, people are going to want to heap to themselves teachers who will tickle their ears. Uh, in other words, I, I'm going to find a teacher, not that teaches the truth, because truth is sometimes uncomfortable. How many of you, this, this is a rhetorical question, but we'll go ahead and do a hand raise on this question, just for grins. How many of you have ever heard the truth from God's word that made you personally uncomfortable because you didn't like what you heard? Man, if, if you haven't experienced that, you had not been listening. Uh, and, and Paul says that people will want teachers... Not that tell them the truth, because the truth can be uncomfortable. They want teachers who will tell them what they want to hear. So, if I change the message, and instead of preaching verse by verse through Second Peter, I started having messages about how, with positive thinking, you can change your destiny, and you can be in control of your life. I can get a big following. But that wouldn't be the truth. So we have to do the truth. Second Peter 2.2 he says these false teachers lead people into destruction while they speak evil of the truth. And so it's pretty easy to grow a big church today. All you got to do is, is bring the world's standards into the church and preach a success gospel, and, and you're there. Well, also, these teachers are morally corrupt. There's a saying, and it's a sad saying, that a man's morality dictates his theology. In other words, if there's some immorality I want in my life, I'll find a way to excuse it. Now, Joseph Smith, the founder of the Mormon church, is a good illustration of this, as was Brigham Young, uh, that basically they upheld the doctrine that since David in the Old Testament and since Solomon and since a bunch of other people in the Old Testament had multiple wives, they could have that too. Now, officially, the United States government forced the Mormon church to give up polygamy a number of years ago and said that wasn't legal. You could only marry one person, uh, and you were married to one person, and that was it. And yet, even though the Mormons today say, no, we don't promote polygamy, it's still in their Doctrines and Covenants, which is the book from which they derive their doctrine. It's still there. It's in black and white. 
So they still believe it in writing, even though they can't practice it inside the confines of the United States. But there was a great thought that uh, some men decided that having more than one partner would be a good thing. Now, this September, so I'm just... Uh, hmm. Four, eight, I'm about nine weeks away from having been married for 40 years. Nine weeks away from being married for 40 years. Uh, and if I'm wrong, my wife will tell me. But uh, I, I want to tell you, one woman is enough. Not only is she enough because she's the only friend I need, the only partner I need, but in Chinese there's a character for the word confusion, and it's a picture of two women under one roof. Think about that for just a minute. Just, just think about that for just a minute. So a lot of people will twist the scriptures to make them say what they want. And if they want more than one wife, they'll, they'll put it in their Doctrine and Covenants and they'll quote some Old Testament things out of context and they'll ignore what God says from the very beginning, which is that uh, you, you'll have one wife and you'll cleave to her for the rest of your life. See, false teachers love to twist scripture to justify their own corruption. 2 Peter 2.19, they're in bondage to moral corruption. Jude 19, they're sensual. They don't have the Spirit of God. By the way, if you don't have the Spirit of God, what, that, what does that mean? You're not born again. You're not a Christian. Jude 19 makes that very clear. 2 Timothy 3.1-5, they have a form of godliness, but they deny the power thereof. So they don't have that. So they're morally corrupt. Uh, he says, but know this, that in the last days difficult times will come, for people will be lovers of themselves... Lovers of money. Now, too, I'm going to read this in slow motion, okay? I, I really need to slow this verse down. I want you to think about what's been going on in our society. Think about the riots. Think about people who are not out there rioting. Uh, they're, they're not out there protesting peacefully because of racial differences, but they're using riots as a chance to just take what they want and with no consequences. Now, think about that as I'm reading these words. For people will be lovers of themselves, lovers of money, boasters, arrogant, slanderers, disobedient to parents, ungrateful, unholy, hard-hearted, irreconcilable, slanderous, without self-control, savage, with no interest for what is good, traitors, reckless, conceited, loving pleasure rather than loving God, maintaining a form of godliness but denying its power, avoid these people. Boy, you can see a lot of that, can't you? A lot of that going on. And notice what he says. He says they may have a form of godliness, but he says avoid these people. Stay away from these people because they're not the real deal. And they are void of spiritual power. They, in other words, they cannot lead others to victory over sin because they themselves don't have it. They haven't experienced victory over sin. They're living in sin, so they can't help you. So they excuse their sin. They enjoy their sin. And Jesus said they were like the blind leading the blind, and they both fall into the ditch together. They're in bondage to moral corruption, which makes their ministries void of benefit. In other words, they can't help anybody because they don't have any power to offer. Jesus says that they were, the Pharisees were like whitewashed tombs, that they'd cleaned the outside of the tomb, but inside they were full of rottenness and decay. I've had the privilege in the last few years of twice conducting funeral services in the military cemetery in Grand Prairie, Texas, and both times, the person I was doing the funeral for, they put them in a columbine. How many of you know what a columbine is? 
Okay, so this is a good word for you to know, C-O-L-U-M-B-I-N-E. It is a series of boxes stacked on top of each other in a long wall that you open up and you put the remains, the cremated remains usually, of a person in this box. And instead of being in a, a grave, they're in a columbine. So that's what that big wall is that has all the boxes in it. And I've noticed that every time I go out there, the military is very fastidious to keep everything looking neat. All the crosses for the graves are lined up perfectly so that you can uh, draw a straight line and you can see all the crosses in a perfect line. They're very fastidious about that. If you look at the columbine, the outside of the walls are always washed and clean and never dirty on it. And, and yet, this is like Jesus saying, hey, the outside may be clean, but inside it's death and decay. And he says that's, that's what these teachers are like. They're like whitewashed tombs uh, in everything they do. And then they produce corrupt fruit. How did Jesus say people would know us? Say, you can't see my heart. I could be the biggest fraud you've ever met. How would you know if I was the real deal as a Christian? you would have to look at the fruit of my life. Now, James made this very plain when James says, you say that you're justified by your faith, I'll show you my faith by my works. What's James saying? God can see my heart, but the only way you'll know if I'm really in the faith is if my works show it. In other words, when Jesus came into my heart, it should have forever changed the way that I act. It should have forever changed the way that I behave. And he says, you can't, these people can't produce good fruit because they they're, have their own corruption. So you need to do a fruit check on teachers and say, what kind of fruit do they have? What's the validity of the character? I can think right now of two very popular, quote, unquote, Christian musicians who later recanted their faith in Jesus Christ they were in Christian music because of the money it made them, but not because of a personal relationship with Jesus. That's tragic. But it does happen. What Jesus say? You will recognize them by their fruits. They do not gather grapes from thorn bushes or figs from thistles, do they? In the same way, every good tree produces good fruit, but a bad tree produces bad fruit. A good tree is not able to produce bad fruit, nor a bad tree to produce good fruit. Every tree that does not produce good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. As a result, you will recognize them by their fruits. By the way, I've had the opportunity several times to go to a church right after the pastor had left and serve for a while as an interim pastor. And I always try when I'm in that position to give the church some guidance in how to find a good pastor. One, of course, the first thing is pray for that man. Pray for God to call him to you. But the other way is that when you interview the pastor, don't pick him, because a lot of churches do this. They, they say they're inviting a preacher in view of a call. That's the term, in view of a call. The preacher comes, and if he preaches a sermon they like, then they're likely to vote him as a pastor. And I've always encouraged, do not call somebody to be a preacher because of the way he preaches. You need to interview his wife. You need to see, talk to his kids. You need to run a credit check, see if the man pays his bills on time. Because a, a godly man who's going to be a pastor and elder needs to be void of offense both toward God and toward man. How are you going to know that unless you see if he pays his bills on time? 
See if his kids are in subjection. So this is why Paul tells Timothy there's some requirements for an elder. He needs to be the husband of one wife. He needs to be a one-woman man. And he needs to have his children in subjection to him. In other words, not by bullying them or by being angry. He's also not supposed to be a striker. He's not supposed to be given into anger. In other words, what's the fruit? And we need to do that. Now, here's an important question. Who is it that's most vulnerable to false teachers? We need to figure that out. Because it says, and in greediness, they'll exploit you. By the way, that's, that's their, they're in it for themselves. Ingredients they will exploit you with false words whose condemnation from long ago is not idle and their destruction is not asleep. So who is vulnerable? Well, first of all, if you're spiritually weak and immature. Uh, if you look in the world of nature and you've got a herd of, uh, you know, a flock of sheep and a wolf's going them after them, they're going to pick the small ones, they're going to pick the ones at the back, they're going to pick the ones that are most vulnerable. If you watch a herd of antelope and one of them's got a limp, that's the one the lions are after, they're after that one because that's the weak one. If it's a herd of zebra and they're after that, they look for the zebra that's at the back of the pack. They look for the weakest or most spiritually immature members, and then false teachers establish a friendship with these people. By the way, this reminds me of a story in the Old Testament that when Absalom was mad at his father David, who Absalom was just kind of banished for a while, and then he came back, and David didn't even bother talking to him. And so now they're back living under the same roof, but there's no relationship between them. And Absalom starts sitting at the city gate, and when people come for judgment to talk to the king so that he can pass judgment on an issue, he just sits out there and says, well, I don't know what my dad will say, but if I were a king, here's what I would do. And he starts undermining David's authority. And that's what they do. They establish friendships with people who are in conflict. They're having problems. Then they lead these people astray. They destroy their walk with the Lord. And in 2 Peter 2, verses 14 and 15, it says that they beguile unstable souls. Or another translation says they entice unstable persons. So if you're unstable, you're not mature, you're not founded in the word, you make a good victim for these people. Also, those who have unresolved guilt. It says uh, in 2 Timothy chapter 3, talking about uh, the false teachers that can come in. He says, For of this sort are they which creep into houses, lead captive silly women laden with sins, laden with sins, led away with diverse lust, ever learning and never able to come to the knowledge of the truth. He says there's some people that because they're in sin themselves, they're more prone to being led away by false teachers because when you have unresolved guilt there's a block between you and God now God hadn't caused the block you have you sinned you didn't ask forgiveness it's like you're you're a Tupperware container God wants to pour blessings in but you push the lid on you and you push it down and it burps that seal out and then you're sealed up tight and you can't be part of God's blessings or his leadership why because you have sealed yourself off from God by your unresolved guilt and you rationalize things and you become easy prey for for creeps it actually says for of this sort of they which creep into houses so how do, we, how do we make sure that we're not vulnerable here? Well, we confess our sins. We ask God to cleanse us from all unrighteousness, which means we have to forsake our sin. We can't, we can't ask God to forgive us and then we hold on to it. We have to forsake the sin, turn away from it, and we have to claim the blood of Christ. And then we are less likely to be led astray. 
Here's another group of people. These are people who have already rejected the truth. Um, the more times you reject the truth, the easier it is to reject the truth. The first time you're confronted with the truth of God, it may really, it may really weigh on you. And you may see if, we, if you are in a type of church, as we often do, where you have an invitation at the end of the service and you invite people to come up here, give their lives to Jesus Christ, you may see somebody back there, and I've seen it in a lot of meetings where somebody's grabbing the pew to keep from walking up. They don't want to make a fool out of themselves publicly, and yet we should profess Christ publicly, and so they hold on. And then next time you see them, they don't have to grip quite as tight, and soon they, they're just kind of oblivious to the invitation like, God's not speaking to him anymore. See, we can resist something so often we become calloused to it. Uh, any of you that have ever worked out at any kind of sport or playing the guitar or anything else, you know that there's a point at which you develop calluses that are unique to that sport. <laughs> you know that you're a little tougher uh, because of it. And in 2 Peter 2, 2 and verse 20, it talks about this very thing. It says, for it would have been better for them not to have known the way of righteousness, that they hadn't heard the truth, than having known it to turn back from the holy commandment that had been delivered to them. In other words, it would be better for you never to have heard the truth than for you to hear it and then reject it. Because if you've never heard it, you might still be open to it, but once you've received the truth or you've heard it and then you reject it, you've hardened yourself against the truth in the future. The statement of the true proverb has happened to them. A dog returns to his own vomit, and a sow after washing herself returns to wallowing in the mud. And then in 2 Thessalonians, those who reject God's truth are prone to believe a strong delusion or a lie. So in 2 Thessalonians it says, And with every unrighteous deception against those who are perishing, in place of which they did not accept the love of truth, so that they would be saved. He says, here's people that heard the truth. They didn't accept it so that they could be saved. And it says, because of this, these are people who have already rejected the truth. They weren't saved. They didn't give their life to Jesus Christ. It says, God sends them a powerful delusion so that they'll believe the lie in order that all may be condemned who did not believe the truth but delighted in unrighteousness. You say, well, why would God do that? I want you to think back to the story of Pharaoh in the Old Testament. Every time that Moses went and said, let my people go, there was a challenge, and Pharaoh would say something like, well, y'all can go worship, but you have to come back here. And, or he says, well, you can go, but you can't take your wives and your little ones. Or you can go, but you can't take your flocks and herds with you. Or, you know, as, as always, you, you can do this, but you can't do this. Other. In other words, never was Pharaoh willing to say he's going to let God's people go. And then every time that he rejects God's instruction to him, it says... And Pharaoh hardened his heart. And Pharaoh hardened his heart. And you keep hearing that over again. Pharaoh hardened his heart. Pharaoh hardened his heart. Pharaoh hardened his heart. And at the end, it says, and God hardened Pharaoh's heart. In other words, God brought a hardness to Pharaoh's heart so that he would not respond to him, so that God's judgment could be made plain and so Israel would be set free. But God never hardened Pharaoh's heart until Pharaoh had done it repeatedly to himself. Yes, we may bring a strong delusion, but we have to first of all reject ourselves. If anything, I think we should praise God that we have a God that would give Pharaoh nine chances to repent. The problem is he just didn't take any of them. 
So what kind of damage can these false teachers do to the cause of Christ? Well, they'll destroy unity within the body of Christ. And John 17 is the most beautiful prayer probably that's ever been prayed, where Jesus is praying for you and me, those of us who have believed and received Jesus Christ as our Savior. And his first words out of his mouth were, Father, you and I are one. Make them one with us. Let them be one in unity with us, because that's what we're supposed to be. And then, so... False teachers want to destroy the unity that God wants to build. And false teachers cause the lost to reject Christianity. In other words, if he can get disunity in a church and he can get Christians arguing with one another, people look at it and say, well, I don't want any part of that. Let me tell you the saddest thing I see amongst homeschooling families. I see this a lot. Uh, or any families for that matter. It's true whether you homeschool or public school, it doesn't really matter. But if you raise your kids to come to church and you teach them God's Word and you try to get them to memorize Scripture and you try to get them to understand that it's God important, but Mama and Daddy keep arguing with one another and there's contention there and there's yelling in the household and there's no respect from the wife to the husband and there's no care and tenderness from the husband toward the wife, you know what happens when those kids get old enough to leave home? They say, I don't want any part of their faith because I saw how mom and daddy were with each other. So husbands and wives, you need to get your act together and make sure that you demonstrate the love of Christ toward one another as a constant living sermon for what the love of God and Jesus Christ should mean to their lives. By the way, this is why Paul reproved the, reproved the Corinthian church. They, they were arguing. Uh, they, they had all these factions. Some said, well, I'm of Paul. And others said, I'm of Apollos. And some said, well, I'm of Cephas. And others said, well, I don't need any human preacher. I just follow Jesus. Which sounds very spiritual. But their point was to be arrogant about it. And then they started suing one another, going before unchristian judges to work out matters that should have been worked out inside the church. And Paul says, this should never be. You are destroying the ministry that we should have in Christ. So how do we respond to these false teachers? Well, first of all, you need to grow up in the faith and disciple some others. Now, this is something I don't think many Christians have ever done. I would dare say, and I'm just guessing here, but I would dare say that somewhere between 90 and 95% of all Christians have never led anybody to a personal relationship with Jesus Christ. They've never helped somebody pray to receive Jesus as their Savior. They're too scared. They're, I don't know what we're scared of. I mean, we're going to heaven. We don't have anything left to be scared of, but we're scared. We have the fear of man rather than the fear of God. And then for those of us that have done that, have we ever sat down and helped someone to grow in their faith so that then they can go out and start teaching others about Jesus Christ? That's called discipling others. You need to be able to do that because if you become spiritually mature, you are less likely to become the prey of false teachers. You also need to learn to try every spirit. When somebody tells you something, you need to do two things. One is check the word, and the other is, Check with the Holy Spirit. Colossians 3 tells us that we're to let the peace of God umpire in our hearts. Let me tell you what I think that means. An umpire really, and I'm, I don't want anybody here who is a big sports fan to get upset with what I'm about to say, 
but it doesn't really require a whole lot of brains, I think, to be a baseball umpire. Basically, you're squatting down. It takes great knees to do this job and a good back to do this job, probably good thigh muscles to do this job, but you squat down and you're looking for one of two things. Is the ball in the strike zone? Is it between the knees and, and the belt? Is it in that area? Is it, a certain, is it over the home plate or is it outside or is it inside of the home plate? And then there are other people to help you with. Did somebody's foot touch the bag before the ball got to the first baseman? There's people to help with that if you can't determine it. But basically you're calling balls or you're calling strikes or you're, it's a hit. And I think the Holy Spirit sometimes when I hear something taught or I hear someone speak, and I instantly feel uneasy about it. I think that's the Holy Spirit calling a ball or a strike. And he's saying, you better go check what this is. And so then I'm going to go check with the Bible or I'm going to go find a, a person who really knows Scripture and I'm going to check with them to say, would you help me understand this? Because this person said this, but it didn't match with what I heard in the sermon, or it didn't match with something I read in my Bible this week, would you help me understand this? And that's a good thing. If you hear something and you immediately lose your sense of peace about it, you need to go check. Now, you could be wrong. I've been wrong before. But it's a good signal that we need to try every spirit. In other words, does the teacher, do they glorify Jesus Christ, or do they just want people to pat them on the back and tell them what a good job they did? Does he encourage repentance? Does he encourage holy living? And then in Jude 3, we may have to contend. That means fight for the faith. If someone's a false teacher, we need to, and we, we've got the word to prove it, we need to go to them and in a spirit of love speak the truth, but we need to speak the truth to them and say, you know what you said today just isn't right. Now sometimes I've had people in my church that did this in really a funny way. Uh, I was preaching on Noah and his sons one day. When God tells Noah to build the ark, does anybody know how long it was from the time he told Noah to build the ark till the flood came? What was that? 120 years. This man, give that man a, a pat on the back. He's a, 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 an air pat on the back, you know. So, yeah, we're giving you air pats from here. That was exactly right, 120 years. Well, I said something in my sermon about, so Noah got started on building the ark and built it for 120 years. And a church member came up to me and said, Pastor, it doesn't say that in the Bible. And I thought, what? I was sure it said it, but I went in and they were right. It says that, that from the command of the time the ark built was 120 years, but it doesn't say how long he waited. I don't know. He may have had to wait for Shem, Ham, and Japheth to, to get a little older before they could carry the wood or carry the tools. Or he may have been cutting down things slowly until they could get out there and help with the lumber. But I had said something that I couldn't prove from Scripture. And I had a wonderful sweet lady by the name of Mary Bay that would catch me on stuff like that. And I loved it. I loved the fact that I had a church member who would catch me when I was wrong. Of course, sometimes we do it just... We're, we're little... Pastors are human. Do you all know that? Everybody know that? Pastors are human? I made the mistake one time of preaching a sermon from Daniel. And you may remember Daniel was given a name, a different name by King Nebuchadnezzar. Does anybody remember what that name was? Say that aloud. Say it, Judy. 
where I can hear. Yeah, okay. So Belshazzar, there was Belshazzar and there was Belteshazzar. Two different people in Daniel. One of them refers to Daniel. The other refers to the king that was the descendant of Nebuchadnezzar. And somehow or other, during the sermon, I kept confusing the two names. I said them backwards. And it was my lovely sweet wife that told me later, Honey, you messed up. She always says that so graciously, though. But she let me know that I confused. Well, I, that's, that's why I refused to use uh, Belteshazzar in a sermon. That's why I don't use Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, because I'm going to call them by their God-given names, like Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah, because those are better meaning names. When people start giving you pagan names, there's a problem. But sometimes we may have to contend and say, you know, that's just not right. And you need to change, or, or, or you've got a, we've got a problem here. But these people also are profiting for profit. There, there are ministerial charlatans and quacks. They've troubled the flock of God. These are the guys on TV that, that uh, if you send them an offering for a certain amount, they'll bless their prayer cloth, and they'll send it back to you, and everything is, is good. But they use the church for their own mercenary purposes, and they turn the church into a dirty marketplace. Ba- basically, the word that Peter uses... And parousentai means to commercialize, means to buy, sell, trade, carry on business. And, and Peter says here that they have plastois logois, plasticized words. In other words, Peter says these false prophets, when they speak, are not being genuine. They're not teaching you the truth. They are using plastic words. They're imitation they're fake, they're artificial, they're not genuine, and yet they are coming among the church of God, and they are coming with their plastic words, and that's the Greek word plastois is where we get the word plastic, and they're coming and they're basically just faking everybody out with their plastic words. And that's a problem. Through covetous shall they, verse 3, with feigned words. The word feigned words in the King James is plastic words in the Greek. They come with plastic words or fabricated uh, words. Now, what's their reward for all that they have? Condemnation. Now, this is where we're, we may have a Bible problem here unless we, we spend some time working through the details because it says at the end of this, Verse 3, through covetousness shall they with feigned words make merchandise of you whose judgment, the word krimna, now of a long time lingereth not, and their damnation, apoleia, destruction, sleepeth not. So what's their end? It's judgment and destruction. And the word apoleia is used of eternal destruction. In other words, because I'm a child of God, if I get up here and I have something in my life that dishonors the Lord, he's probably going to chastise me for that. You know what chastise is, right? He gives you a whooping. God whoops me from time to time. Anybody else here besides me ever been whooped by the Lord? Chastised. Okay. So you're chastised because God loves you, and just like you love your kids and you don't want them growing up and being ungodly. So occasionally you do that thing that says... 
Child, this is going to hurt you, hurt me more than it's going to hurt you. When you're old and you ache like I do in every joint, you know that's true. It hurts me more than it hurts them. But the point is, is that God loves us. He chastises us. That's not the word here. These people are destroyed. They fall into the same doom that has been provided for other violators of truth and righteousness down in verse 4 through 6. Let's read those verses, 2 Peter 3, 4 through 6. For if God spared not the angels that sinned, but cast them down to hell and delivered them into chains of darkness to be reserved unto judgment, and spared not the old world, but saved Noah the eighth person, a preacher of righteousness, bringing in the flood upon the world of the ungodly, and turning the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah into ashes, condemned them with an overthrow, making them an example unto those that after should live ungodly. God's, Peter's not saying here that the false teachers are being chastised. He's saying they're being destroyed. They're going to hell. They're going in ultimately into the lake of fire, and God's justice does not sleep. So he gives some examples. He gives us three examples. He says the fallen angels. Peter, I think, is going back because he quotes from Genesis when he talks about the flood. That's, uh, and he, he is quoting about Sodom and Gomorrah. That's also from Genesis. So I think when he's talking about the angels, he's talking about what it tells us about the angels in the book of Genesis. And he's probably talking about the passage of the sons of God and the daughters of men. Uh, let me read that to you. Genesis 6, first four verses. And it happened that when humankind began to, to multiply on the face of the ground, daughters were born to them. Then the sons of God, which is an Old Testament term for angels, saw the daughters of humankind that they were beautiful, and they took for themselves wives from all that they chose. And Yahweh said, My spirit shall not abide with humankind forever, and that he is also flesh, and his day shall be 120 years. The Nephilim, that's the giants, uh, were upon the earth in those days and also afterward when the sons of God went into the daughters of humankind and they bore children to them. These were the men, mighty warriors that were from ancient times men of renown. Uh, so there were these giants. And I've preached a sermon on giants before and showed you that they even existed in more modern times. But a few points here. First of all, angels can't marry people. Okay, only people can marry people. In fact, is anything outside of this life? So Jesus told people there won't be any marrying or giving a marriage in heaven. Which, by the way, the Mormons totally ignore that. Mormons have an interesting thing, and you ladies should be glad you're not Mormon because in Mormon theology, you, when you die, you are in, it, in an eternal soul sleep unless your husband can remember the special Mormon name that was given to you during your wedding ceremony in the Mormon church. And if he can't remember that name, you can't ever wake up. You spend eternity in sleep. And, and, and listen, guys that can't even remember to put the seat down, will they really remember your name when it comes time? Just think about that just a minute. Okay? So this is a problem. Uh, and there actually are remarriage ceremonies because occasionally a husband will say, you know, I don't remember. You're not allowed to repeat it while you're alive. So sometimes a guy will go back to Mormon church and says, you know, I still like my wife, but I've forgotten the name that she got married with. Will you tell it to me so I can make sure that she resurrects and we'll, we'll, I'll have her in the afterlife? But Jesus said there's no marriage nor giving in marriage in heaven. 
But angels can't marry men. I think there's a couple theories, and this isn't a sermon about Genesis 6, so we won't spend any time here. Some people said the sons of God are the descendants of Seth, and the daughters of, of men are you know, the descendants of one of other Noah's sons. Uh, I think what it is is that demons possess men, and they married and they brought out almost a super race that God ultimately destroys uh, in the flood. In fact, is in Jude... We read an interesting statement. It says, And the angels who did not keep their own domain, but deserted their proper dwelling place, he has kept in eternal bonds under deep gloom for the judgment of the great day, as Sodom and Gomorrah and the towns around them indulged in in, uh, sexual immorality and pursued unnatural desire in the same way as these are exhibited. As an example, by undergoing the punishment of eternal fire. Despite that, in the same way also these men, because of their dreams, defile the flesh and reject authority and blaspheme majestic beings. So apparently, the angels that perverted mankind before the flood and caused God to destroy the whole world, minus eight people, that those angelic beings were reserved in chains unto everlasting judgment. Now, there are fallen angels that are free. These are the demons that roam around. They're the ones that torment you. They're the ones that often bring you a little grief. Now, we don't actually need demons to do that because we have our own sin nature that does plenty of of self-torment without the demons, okay? But there is demonic activity. Uh, I've worked in a, a criminally insane hospital, basically a hospital for... Uh, those who had committed crimes. I mean, the guys I worked with had, you know, one of, one of the guys I got to be really good friends with, he just uh, he went out one day and thought his brother was a Japanese soldier and blew his brother's brains out with a shotgun, you know, and I, I spent every week with this guy. His name was Rodney. And, uh, but I remember seeing a guy named Joseph who one night I walked down the hall and he's standing on top of a Bible and there's like six or eight books all around the Bible, all open to pictures of snakes. And he's chanting something in a language I'd never heard and he's making these hand motions. And I walked down there and very calmly said, Joseph, you need to go back to bed. And he said, yes, sir. And then he gets up like he's going back to bed and I'm walking back up the hall and all of a sudden I hear the I thought, oh man, somebody just got hit. And I turned around, and Joseph was bringing a metal dustpan off of my head. I reached up. I had no feeling at all. There was no feeling. It took an hour for the feeling to come back, and when it did, I wished it hadn't, because it really hurt. In fact, it was such a big hit that the very next day, they got rid of every metal dustpan in the hospital, which was about 30 buildings. And they replaced them all with plastic dustpans because they realized if he had just turned it this way, he'd have sliced open my skull. Now, you can't tell me that guy wasn't demon-possessed. Any other member of the staff could go to Joseph and talk to him, and he would not have reacted that way. But there was something in my spirit that the spirit that was in him recognized that we weren't on the same side. And he took that opportunity to try to damage me. That's demon possession. Now, I remember the hospital had a, a, a chaplain by the name of Dr. Uh, Dr. Carl Case who said one time that, oh, demon possession was just the biblical term for mental illness. Well, 
I've seen people who are just mentally ill. I've seen people who are stressed out. I've seen people that their body chemistry was off and made a little difference. But then I've seen people who are demon-possessed, and it's not the same thing as mental illness. Mentally ill people can be helped but have to be helped in a different way than people who are demon-possessed. God judges those fallen angels, and, and as surely as God judged those fallen angels, he will judge false teachers. He puts them into hell. Literally, the Greek word is Tartarus. It's evidently a prison of custody. So the angels that are locked in chains into everlasting judgment are in Tartarus. That's the Greek word. Not to be confused with Tartarus, which looks like a phone booth and allows Dr. Who to travel everywhere. Okay? Totally different thing. Uh, but... It's, it's between that time of judgment and their ultimate consignment to the lake of fire. They're bound there. And there is no future trial for those angels. They've already been condemned. They're already in prison. They're just awaiting the very final judgment. And Peter argues that false prophets are going the same place these fallen angels are. So we're talking about eternal damnation. Well, God also judged this antediluvian world. Ante, A-N-T-E, means before. Diluvian means the flood. These, he judged the world of people that were before the flood. Antediluvian. So there's a new vocabulary word for you. There, and out of a whole world of people, only eight people survived. Now, I think they, this is a really cool character. You've heard us talk about it before. This is Chinese character Chuan, which means boat. And it's made up of three smaller characters. It basically, a boat was a ship or a vessel with eight people. Now this is the second oldest written language in the world. And the word for boat means a ship or a vessel with eight people. How many people were on the ark? Noah, his wife, Shem, Ham, and Japheth, and their three wives. Hi, look at that. Eight people. Second oldest language in the world, by the way, has about 300 characters that tell stories from the first 14 chapters of Genesis. Don't let anybody tell you that Genesis is fiction. It's real. There's a bunch more of this on our website if you're interested in looking. But you need to be understanding that there's no majority, real, no majority rule with God. Uh, there's, there's just his rule. And today we've got this whole society of people that thinks that if the minority can make enough noise to confuse the majority that will vote wrong and will give them what they want, and then they'll have the utopia or the power or the have their avarice and greed satisfied the way they want to. But here's the thing. God, there's no majority rule. So basically, Peter is saying, if God was willing to destroy the entire world of people except for eight people, how do you think false prophets are getting away from his judgment? They're not. In fact, is he says, bringing in the flood is the Greek word epago. It means that the flood came upon them suddenly and judgment will come upon false prophets suddenly. Well, then he gives one more example. God judged Sodom and Gomorrah. Another example that in destruction of the ungodly. It says they burned them to ashes. Tephrosos means they burnt to ashes. And Peter says that God did this to make them an example. Verse 6, And turning the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah into ashes, condemned them with an overthrow, making them an example unto those that after should live ungodly. In other words, Sodom, what happened to Sodom and Gomorrah is a good picture of what's going to happen to those who reject the truth. Verse 7 of Jude, as Sodom and Gomorrah and the towns around them indulged in sexual immorality and pursued unnatural desire in the same way as these are exhibited as an example by undergoing the punishment of eternal fire. And by the way, I'm gonna, I need to address the big elephant in the room. Can you be homosexual and Christian? 
it's kind of a sore subject with me because I have a sister that I've only met once in my life, and we reconnected this last week. She's in San Antonio, Texas. And I'd ask that you pray for my half-sister, Ellen. And she is living a lifestyle of sodomy. Her husband rejected her and left her, and that's what she decided to go into instead. And she talks about how she's a Christian. But when I read 1 Corinthians 6, and I read 1 Corinthians 3, and I read 1 Corinthians 9, there's a truth that keeps popping up. And that is it lists a a set of sins, and it says that if you do these things, you shall not inherit the kingdom of God. And in that list of sins is sodomy. Now, it doesn't mean that a person who's ever committed sodomy or homosexuality can't be saved. It doesn't mean that someone might temporarily be misled into that lifestyle and then they lose their salvation. But what it's saying is if a person continually lives that lifestyle, they are giving evidence of the fact that they are not born again. And I know you think I'm being hard there. Drunkenness goes in that category too.